0: This episode is brought to you by Merrick Pet Care. And if you've heard me talk about Grammy, you know that she means the world to me. I wanted a dog for probably 10 years and I was living in an apartment, couldn't have dogs. When I finally moved somewhere else, I adopted her within weeks and it was love at first scritch. She's about two feet away from me as I record this. She hangs out in the studio and all I want to do is smooch her and look at her and stare at her. I also like feeding her because I see how happy it makes her. And there's nothing like watching her lick her chops after having yummy stuff like Grammy's Paw Pie or Real Texas Beef and Sweet Potato, which are two recipes she's been enjoying for America. As her parent, I like that they use deboned meat and fish or poultry is the number one ingredient. I also like that they have these real ingredients and you can see them on the bag, so you know what's in each one. And watching her do a little dance, especially with a Grammy's pot pie recipe, brings too much joy to my heart. Is there such a thing as too much joy? I'm not sure. But check out Merrick online or in your local pet store and look for their new packaging with real ingredients shown on the bag and inside it. Building a portfolio with Fidelity Basket portfolios is kinda like making a sandwich. It's as simple as picking your stocks and ETFs, sort of like your meats and other topics, and managing it as one big, juicy investment. Mmm, now that's pretty good. Learn more at fidelity.com slash baskets. Investing involves risks, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. Oh, hey, it's your old Dad Ward Von podcast just slipping into your life to chat with you about ancient toilets buried treasure and Roman rulers. Oh, this episode, it's been simmering for millennia. And if you listened to Egyptology, you'll already have kind of a wee primer on the hot empire gossip we're about to unleash. But first, just a quick thanks. Uh, thank you to all the patrons at patreon.com slash ologies for supporting as little as a quarter an episode. A buck a month gets you in that club. And thanks to everyone getting merch at ologiesmerch.com. And for no money, you can support just by telling some friends, maybe some coworkers, some enemies about the show. Also, rating and subscribing on iTunes keeps this boat afloat and reviewing just makes my day because sometimes I'm tired or sad and then I see a nice thing you said. So this week, I creeped the review of sexy bitch. They say, you know that thing that happens when you meet someone at a party and realize that you both love the same science podcast and then you freak out and talk about it at a mile a minute while everyone around you is like, what's their problem right now? If the answer is no, you've never listened to ologies. This episode list is like the menu at an amazing restaurant. Literally anything you choose is a good idea. Thank you, sexy bitch. Okay. Archaeology. Let's get into the etymology really quick. Um, archaeology comes from the Greek. Arche, for beginning, and classical archaeology deals specifically with ancient Rome or ancient Greece. Boy, howdy, hot dang. This ologist knows his business. He's an American who lives in Rome. So the dude is literally walking the talk. And he's the executive director of the American Institute for Roman Culture. So dude was a Fulbright scholar who got his master's and PhD in archaeology at the University of Texas. And he's the host of a PBS series called Ancient Invisible Cities, as well as the Italian series called under Italy, where he crawls into cool tunnels and tombs and shit. It's very rad. Season two is about to start. Uh, he was in LA as a Getty Conservation Institute scholar at the Getty Museum. And my lovely friend, an equestrian by the name of Mackenzie Rollins, hey girl, introduced us via email. And then we met up, we chatted, we got a little geeky about the Greeks, but mostly, it's all about the Romans. So a statement on his website just reads, my passion is Rome. And it is not a lie. And like a plague in ancient times, it's infectious. So hang on to your togas and recline on your laurels to hear all kinds of dirt with classical archaeologist, Dr. Darius Aria. So, you, Darius Arya sounds like a superhero name.
1: Yeah, it almost almost rhymes, which I've gotten that. <laughs>
0: Darius Arya. Hello. Also known as DAR. <laughs> so you are in the United States right now, but you're based in Italy.
1: That's exactly correct. I get complimented here uh, on my English all the time because they're like, oh my God, you're from Italy, but you're English. You sound so, so like a native speaker. I'm like, well, actually, yes.
0: <sighs> no, you're from New York originally.
1: No, okay. So I was born in Buffalo, but I was, uh, I grew up in Huntington, West Virginia. Okay. And My dad was a coal miner. Oh. And no.
0: Okay. I believed you for one second. <laughs> no, no.
1: The Iranian coal miner. That's a good story, though. Anyways, uh, then I went to uh, boarding school in New Hampshire. So I had my New England experience. And then I stayed in uh, in the area. I went to University of Pennsylvania. So I had my Philadelphia experience, mm-hmm. city of brotherly love. And, uh, then I got my PhD in Austin, Texas, which is a, the surreal spot in all of Texas. And
0: then when did you start studying archeology? span I know your dad, not a coal miner, your dad was a surgeon.
1: Yeah. My dad's surgeon retired, but he, my dad's Iranian. So, uh, he came over through, uh, study in Vienna, met my mom there, uh, work, uh, in London. And then finally to Buffalo, uh, where he did his residency. My mom is American, German American. So that's the kind of link up, uh, and uh, but archaeology, I mean, I was always interested in ancient history. I was always interested in something, something old, I uh, was lucky enough as a kid then to to travel to museums in the United States. And I love the Smithsonian. I mean, I think the Smithsonian will strike has something for everyone. You know, it just strikes you in a certain way as air and space or natural history. And for me, it was these exhibitions on uh, the ancient civilizations. And there was a huge one on Darius the Great. I'm like, oh, who is this guy? You know, so got a little bit of my history in there that, that spurred it on. So
0: side note, if you're like, everyone knows who Darius the Great, the ruler of Persia around 500 BCE is, except me. You're not alone. I had to look this up. So Darius the dead one, not the alive guy that I'm interviewing, built the 1700 mile long intercontinental Royal Road. And he had a ton of wives. And he also is known for having carved his autobiography into a limestone cliff face, including details about a bunch of wars he won. It was a baller move. It was kind of like a mix between Mount Rushmore and a Barbara Walters interview and some really good battle rap lyrics. Anyway, he
1: had style. And you
0: were named after him?
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, but I mean, it's like, um,
0: is it like John? Is it a very yeah, common? Name? Yeah.
1: I'm John. Yeah. Okay. John Smith is Darius <laughs> Aria in, in Farsi. Something like that. But,
0: it's great. It, honestly, you sound yeah. like a superhero. And,
1: uh, well, when I studied Latin, it was great because then I, I, my name can decline, you know? <laughs> that is such a niche... Observation. Yeah. As
0: someone who studied Latin for four oh, years, I like very much appreciate oh, yeah. the declining. Exactly. Did you study ancient languages when you were getting your archaeology PhD?
1: Yeah, no. I, right when I was a kid, I was uh, in in Huntington. Uh, we had this absolutely spectacular, nationally acclaimed Latin teacher. So why, and that, that's why I didn't study French. I mean, the, that was the other option. I was like, well, we well, got to study with with this uh, with this person, and she was just so dynamic and on fire. Lois Merritt. I mean, you know, she's still kicking around and, uh, you know, whenever, whenever I go back home, she's always, oh, my, one of my favorites, you know, the students and all this sort of stuff, but she was just great. And that's what you want in any teacher, someone that really inspires you and someone you can go back to and someone that just, uh, you know, is really excited about their material.
0: Yeah. I bet as a Latin teacher, She's like, yes. yes. She's like, I turned one
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> into a lifelong <laughs> yeah. Roman enthusiast.
1: addict, yeah. And then I live in Rome. That's why I was just blindly doing the Latin and Greek mm-hmm. junior high, then high school, you know, uh, it just really enjoyed it. But I didn't think career. So I was in that generation where you, you just didn't really talk about it. And, uh, and then, you know, and then you'd move forward and then you're in university and your parents are like, what are you studying? Like I'm studying. I'm going to keep studying classics, but I don't want to do that. They're like, well, okay. Maybe you want to look at a PhD. No, no, no. I don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you want to look at the sciences. You want you, you know, your brother's pre-med. Do you want to look at it? No, 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 no. So I just was not interested in that. And then I decided having studied a semester in Rome, Italy. That was the real kicker for me. That was when I really, uh, just opened my eyes, uh, to, you know, how much more I could do with the uh, stuff I was studying. And so then archaeology just became this thing like, oh, could I really do that? And a lot of people wanted, they fall in love with archaeology and it's just hard to do something with it because the field is, I mean, you're very specialized and then you come out and there are, there's no jobs. So mm-hmm. it feels like just an uphill kind of battle. Um, so I wasn't even thinking about that when I decided to do it. I wasn't thinking about job prospects. I wasn't, th- I was not very, this is not what I would tell my children. <laughs> I would not to go into something, don't be responsible, don't think about your future, don't think about how you're going to pay for anything. You know, I would never tell my kids to do that. I'll be like any other parent going, oh
0: my God, what are you doing with your life? You followed a passion though. Yeah. Which is what got you to keep studying it through getting a PhD. It was what yes. you were most passionate about. So Daria says that part of being a professional archaeologist is just figuring out the right job after you score the PhD. And you might have to get a little creative. So you might have to compromise a little. You might have to write a book in the day while waiting tables at Olive Garden at night. That's okay. So for him, doing field work plus scholarly work plus hosting TV shows and podcasts has turned out to be the right combination.
1: I'm Darius Aria. I'm an archaeologist off to explore three of the most amazing cities on the planet.
0: So, you know, a field is potentially a little challenging when your side hustle is being a TV show host, but he's great at it and it's working for him, clearly. I mean, like, imagine if John Stamos had a PhD and took over Mike Rowe's job, but in ancient catacombs. He's killing it. What does an archaeologist do? If someone says, yeah. I'm an archaeologist, Ooh, yes. what does that mean? Because I feel like we I think of dusty chinos yeah. and like worn yeah. boots and definitely a hat.
1: Yeah, most, most archaeology isn't spending your time in the field. Uh, I mean, I can qualify that and say, okay, some people just do that all the time because they're like contract archaeologists. So there's always something going on in Italy where... You know, some house is being built, or some building is being restored, or some road is being put in, and so they're always out in the field doing the excavation. And in that sense, urban development and so on, or rescue operations. But you know, generally speaking, um, you're studying the past. So you, you know, you're an Egyptologist, or I'm a a classical archaeologist. So I'm in the Mediterranean, I'm in Central Europe, I'm where the Romans were. But generally speaking, you know, the archaeologists will spend a lot of time. In libraries, like I'm here at the library using the resources of the Getty,
0: and so it's some part in the field, but a lot of a lot of it is spent also piecing together a lot of different parts of history to form kind of a narrative or try to piece together a narrative that has parts missing.
1: Yeah, exactly. So you're you're um, you know you're getting a wealth of information when you're excavating. Uh, or doing some sort of evaluative study. I mean, it can be non-invasive nowadays, uh, but then you need to sift through the data. Like what you've now come up with, it has to make sense.
0: Oh man, I love this part. Archaeology is like a fascinating parfait of abandoned junk.
1: Or if you're excavating, you know, you've you've uh, unearthed different strata, different layers uh, that people have left behind. And you've gone through the chronology, you know, backwards. So you're trying to piece it together, understanding from the beginning to the end. Of course you're you're actually the most recent stuff uh, first. So there's a bit of a puzzle there. Oh, and what kind of tools
0: are you using? Sure. Take me through a dig.
1: Okay. So the first thing is sometimes, you know, talk to some little kid, rarely an adult, but somebody will say, Have you ever found any dinosaurs? I'm like, <laughs> no, I'm not that kind of archaeologist. So God creates dinosaurs. God destroys
0: dinosaurs. God creates man. Man Destroys
1: Guide. Anyways, uh, so what I'm I'm concentrating on uh, professionally has been uh, the Roman era. Um, And because Rome is not a place that's abandoned and has continually been occupied, there are various layers that can be quite late. Um, So, you know, for top layer of a site, well, I mean, it will be modern, you know, so there's going to be something. Uh, just people deposit stuff, people leave stuff behind. And it can be, you know, a Coke bottle or a piece of barbed wire fencing. I mean, it could be something obviously like that. And then you're you're getting down into, uh, actually in Rome, uh, in vicinity, the environs can be very, very rapid. Sometimes it's as even as, it's been just shallow as, say, you know, four or five inches. Awesome! boom, we're already hitting ancient material. And uh, where which is, is, is this?
0: Is this like in a construction site? Is this a puddle? No,
1: I'm, so I'm I've been, my excavations have been in... Really historic places that are well-known, like the Roman Forum, but then also uh, an archaeological site called Ostia Antica. And Ostia Antica was the port city of Rome. Basically, Ostia was uh, developed as the city at the mouth of the Tiber River. So, you imagine this uh, river flowing uh, from the north through Rome and then dumping out into the Mediterranean.
0: So, this is a city located right about at the kneecap. Of Italy. It's right on the sea, and it's been abandoned for about a thousand years. And it now kind of looks like grassland taking over a grid of crumbling brick structures. But in its heyday, it was this bustling port city and the seaside tourist town filled with government buildings and military fortifications, amphitheaters, residences, and ships carrying grains and other supplies would offload tons of goods to be stored and cataloged in warehouses. And then tugged upriver, by little boats, and then dragged into Rome itself by oxen, or slaves. Because, yeah, Romans had plenty of slaves to cover all kinds of jobs, from hard labor, to sex work, to really specialized and enslaved physicians and accountants. And one very famous slave revolt was led by a gladiator. Um, what was his name? I'm Spartacus! I'm Spartacus.
1: I'm Spartacus. I'm Spartacus. I'm
0: Spartacus. Okay, back to the port Ostia Antica, which means alluringly, old mouth. This was a place of a lot of comings and goings. But once a newer port city nearby started getting more traffic, Ostia Antica became so five minutes ago. It was so over. It was like a hipster bar that your mom's friends started going to. But its abandoned ruins are a really, really good place for archaeologists to piece together the past, because that's what they do. I just stated the obvious. Anyway, Ostia Antica,
1: and so then obviously Ostia becomes a very, very important place uh, for the empire, and it becomes a very multicultural city, and it's a great—it's like a mini Rome. So the fact that it gets abandoned is just there, uh, then allows us to have really exciting and pretty immediate uh, excavations as opposed to, you know, other sites that are, um, you know, continually occupied like Rome. Mm-hmm. Obviously Rome was much more complex to excavate because there's a modern city on top yeah.
0: of it. Yeah. <laughs> and what kind of stuff do you typically find? I'm so thinking... You find
1: a lot of pottery.
0: I was going to say, I feel a lot like there to be a lot of vases. Yeah,
1: yeah. So, I mean, imagine, you know, imagine, uh, you know, you, you have your house, you're living in your house for... Decades and decades and decades, and you're producing over that time period a lot of garbage. Now imagine your rubbish heap, your dump, was right outside in your backyard. Mm-hmm. Just imagine what people would find. Personally, it's just a bunch of kombucha bottles and empty
0: bags of Cool Ranch Doritos. Let's be honest.
1: Oh God! You know, and, and of course, we're obviously we're talking about a lot. Today, we're talking about a lot of plastic. Mm-hmm. Um, so for the Romans almost everything, I mean, sure there's, you know, leather goods they're using or baskets or what, you know, but but the main thing is, you know, in burlap bags, or, but really what's uh, traditionally preserving what was used for storage for pretty much anything was pottery. So you're going to find that and that stuff is fired and it's basically indestructible. But, uh, you know, it's kind of like smashed up and, uh and those things can be pieced together. And then hopefully if you're lucky, you know, there's writing, you know, they write on them uh, oftentimes, um, the uh what the material is and so forth or you know who owns it and 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 so on there's a big dump actually in in Rome called Monte Testaccio it's like a hill
0: oh my god okay a google search reveals this huge grassy hill in an otherwise flat neighborhood but then you get up close and it's like a ceramics graveyard there's just piles and piles and piles of broken pottery like if a giant was so pissed and just smashed all your jars
1: so pissed.
0: So it's all the antiquated mystery of a creepy cemetery with none of the, I'm sad about all the lives that have ended factor. It's great.
1: Um, It's literally something like about 150 feet high. Oh my God. And it's got a circumference of like a mile and a half. And it just dumped (laughs) ceramics that are smashed. And they're primarily, uh, the amphorae, these jars were used for carrying olive oil. So then you say, well, why don't they just reuse the jars? Well, because if you have it filled with olive oil, if you ever try to clean a bottle of olive oil? It's a pain in the ass. Oh, it is okay. It's yeah. So what they did was they just smashed it. So it gives you an idea of the volume, the sheer volume that's coming in. And then keep in mind too that the, the we love the ancient guys because it was also sustainable. So even Rome was a big consumer city. Generally speaking, you'd take those jars and you'd smash them and you'd stick them in the rubble for the mortar. Of a wall, so these things get—you oh. know—they're reusing everything. Uh, but th- to be able to create a, a massive hill like that means it has so much volume coming into this mega city that was the ultimate consumer city. That, oh, we can't even use all this stuff. We'll just dump it over here, and it just becomes this hill. Oh my
0: God! So and people you know, have always been garbage people.
1: Oh yeah. Get off- Some of the greatest finds, I think, in, in recent times, really adding to our knowledge of the ancient world is like, for example, uh, the drainage channels in Herculaneum, one of these cities destroyed by the eruption of Vesuvius, they found something like six tons of human feces. So you go, what? ooh, that's not my kind of dig. But yeah, they like, oh, we hit the mother load. Ooh, these guys were constipated. No, but basically what happens is they sift through all this stuff and they find out, you know. Oh, they had parasites and they had, you know, and this is what they're eating. This is the, this is their diet and, and, and and so forth. And it's really, really fascinating. Again, I don't think I'd want to be like, I don't want to be known as the, the shit archaeologist or something like that. You know, what's your specialty? You're like, oh. <laughs> I've washed my hands. So side note, scatology,
0: bioarchaeology, geoarchaeology. Oh my. So if you poop people are out there, holler.
1: Somebody's got to do it. And it's like, you don't know what's going to happen when you dig. Mm-hmm. And you always have these questions that you ask and you get approval to, to pursue, uh, to answer those questions in your excavation. But of course, it's just like Murphy's Law. Like you're never going to find... What you sought out to find or, you know, it's you think you're, these are shops and therefore you want to understand the commercial activities along this road. Oh, wait a minute. they are not shops there, you know, it was a brothel or I don't know, whatever, you know, mm-hmm. instead of it being, uh, you know, a, a wine shop or something like that. So you just you will not know until you excavate. And that's part of the fun and the mystery and in the puzzle work, because you never find everything intact. You're always going to find, you know, half the puzzle pieces are missing. Mm-hmm. So then you need to figure it out. And you figure that out by talking to colleagues and seeing things that are similar and so forth. But uh, that's a lot of fun.
0: Now, when you've got, let's say, a crushed vase that you've unearthed and it's very exciting, whose mm-hmm. job is it to physically put it back together?
1: Ah, uh, yes. So then, uh, I mean, well, th- that's the job of the conservator, which is very, very important. So, you know, you can carefully document uh, and excavate. Like we actually had a number of tombs at our last dig, so then we had a you know specific expert.
0: So this expert he's talking about is the very very European sounding Pier Paolo Petrone of the Laboratory of Human Osteobiology and Forensic Anthropology. This is near Pompeii. This guy studies the victims of ancient disasters. And just a quick tippy tap on the old computer machine, turned up a paper of his entitled, quote, A Hypothesis of Sudden Body Fluid Vaporization in the 79 AD Victims of Vesuvius. Sudden Body Fluid Vaporization. Whew. Sudden Body Fluid Vaporization. So today I learned that a volcano can boil the blood right out of your body. Okay, anyway.
1: He's looking at, uh, some pelvic bone and he's telling you man or woman and, uh, age and da, 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 da. So it's just, it has been, it was a lot of fun to have him, uh, on the site. And you have to depend upon a good team of people from different backgrounds, mm-hmm. uh, depending on, on what you're doing. Um, do you need a structural engineer because you're going deep? Do you need this, uh, Forensic anthropologist. Do you need, uh, the numismatist? Do you need, you know, for the coins? But it really is exciting because what you're doing is it's, you're recovering the remains of ancient cultures. That's what really archaeology is. And you're, you're doing that through, um, the examination of the material remains. Um, and, uh, you know, it's not just the things, but it's the things that then indicate human activity, human lives. I mean, it really is the way to connect to those, those people of the past. And oftentimes, you know, it's not the big high and mighty, uh, the emperors. Like I've done a lot of TV shows. It's like, tell us one more episode, do one more episode on Caligula, you know, or somebody, (laughs) some crazy, you know, Nero burning Rome. But it's also just that average person, you know, those communities, who were those people? And so they oftentimes remain anonymous because they don't have the funds to leave behind something great and massive and impressive. So it's really the archaeological remains that can help unearth their story. And
0: how did ancient Romans live?
1: Uh, yeah, there's a different ways of looking at it because on the one hand, we just, I mean, I'm still in awe of, of the aqueducts that were constructed to bring all that water into a city. I mean, how do you maintain, you know, a million, you know, people? I mean, that's a mega city. Cities didn't get that large until after the 1700s. I mean, this is, you got to get the industrial revolution to have the sophistication to have those cities. Then you look at the cities uh of the industrial revolution and uh life for a lot of people is pretty shitty you know pretty bad and then you look at ancient roman times and you go "Eh, yeah a lot of people just eking by they're just you know barely making a living so you know we're looking at maybe you know our society today and saying wow the wealthy are becoming really wealthy you know that one idea boom you know that uber that you know whatever that startup and uh but then everyone else, you know, you kind of see this kind of crunch and saying, oh, the middle class is suffering and then the poor. Boy, they're really poor.
0: Darius points out with dismay that this mirrors today's culture in some countries. Some people can't afford healthcare. care. Well, some are just drowning in coin. No big deal. Just taking a private 747.
1: Well, when you go back to the ancient Roman times... You had a small class of people and boy were they wealthy. I mean, they were so wealthy, Mm -hmm. uh, just on another level. And I'm not even talking about the, the imperial family. Uh, it's just that so much wealth was concentrated in the hands of, you know, a handful of families. And then there really was no middle class per se. It's hard to get involved and talk about what was life like when we try to look at it in our own terms. But it definitely was a hard life. I mean, if we think about childbirth. Uh, oh. exact Childbirth is, I mean, you know, having a baby is is even, you have risks today with all the Each modern medicine. Childbirth? Yeah. So you had the oh. midwife. She was very important. You had, uh, actually, it's really neat to see uh, this one guy has a, a plaque outside of his shop and literally is... A woman in a birthing chair that's being assisted so literally like a cutout chair these things exist today and so the, the the Romans wouldn't you know wouldn't go flat that was something that was created in in more recent times and now they're kind of going away from it but basically you know he has a woman giving birth in a chair with a cutout and someone's receiving the baby so it's like this is this is the person this is the person you're gonna contact to, to come to your house you know all these specializations all these careers like this is the person that makes the shoes times I mean there was the guy down the street that was making your shoes mm-hmm. Unless you get the import, right, get more refined leather or whatever, and it can be much more expensive. And that's the way, you show, that's the way you're showing your own wealth. But, you know, the, the, the clothes that are being made, think about everything is made by hand, but in a certain sense, things did get industrialized. You could go to dry cleaners that could accommodate thousands and thousands of people. You drop off your toga, and your toga would be cleaned, oftentimes being soaked in ammonium from urine Whoa. to uh, yeah, get those stains out. No, thank you. And then afterwards, you'd, you'd rinse it out. And obviously there, there, there are different ways in which you can have it, um, clean and and smelling well. So the the life got really complicated, uh, but then also sophisticated because you had the water, let's say from the aqueducts coming in, you have the bath complexes. You can go, you who don't even have a flushing, you know, running water in your, in your house or a toilet could go to these publicly financed, uh, subsidized spaces where you could have, uh, a jacuzzi, you know, soak and and a, and a rub down.
0: Okay, I looked up the amenities in Roman baths and they had heated floors and dry saunas and wet saunas and furnace warmed bathing water and cold plunges and these soaring beautiful ceilings and intricate mosaic floors. And they were public, so they were pretty cheap to get into. And on some holidays, they were just totally free. So I guess if I had a time machine and I could only pick one thing to do, I would Definitely pop over to Germany in the 1930s and fatally kick a certain someone in the ball. But then I'd be like, hey, hey, on the way back, can we also hit an ancient Roman bath? And while we're talking aquatic, so the water systems in Rome were legendary. They were channels of water that went under the city or above it in these bridge like structures, and they were fed by springs, and the flow was transported only via gravity. So all these aqueducts were built to be on some gradient. And even if it wasn't too steep, it didn't even look steep, it still was enough to keep the water flowing just slightly downhill. Now the first aqueduct began operating in 312 BCE and it fed a cattle market in Rome. And then as the centuries passed, hundreds of these human built rivers existed all over the Roman empire. And a lot of the water was used for the bathhouses. I mean, I'm mostly Italian, and it's so weird to think of my ancestors just scrubby dubby, nude jacuzzi chilling. It's probably naked, right? I think they were probably naked.
1: Um, so you know, the Romans had incredible, you know, different ways of, uh, you know, benefiting from, um, yeah, conquest, but then also just a kind of a life standard that, that, uh, that nobody else had. And so then people were, what are people doing today? We're going to the cities because cities give you more opportunities. What were they doing under the Romans? People were flocking to the cities. There were jobs, or opportunities, and there was a whole different lifestyle. And in more sophisticated studies right now, I would add that... Um, we are learning that, yeah, most people probably had lice. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of people looking at the, our, our shit study, uh-huh. you know, that we, a lot of people probably had, you know, different kinds of parasites and, and worms and whatever, whatever. So, I mean, maybe not necessarily the best thing to be in those cities. You talk about the spread of disease and so forth. And then, of course, some of the biggest outbreaks from antiquity, you know, are under the Romans. Uh, Ooh, like what? Oftentimes is identified as bubonic plague and smallpox and stuff like that that were decimating in uh, different periods. Of the, of the of the Roman Empire which had profound effects so imagine one is so bad uh in the let's say the 2nd century that they say the one out of 5 in the empire, this is an empire of about fifty to sixty million people. One out of five died. Wow. No one was spared, from rich to poor. And they're like, "What the hell can we do? How can we stop this?" They faced very uh, difficult things back then, and of course, medicine was really based upon observation. It wasn't based upon the sorts of things that we can do today. So, yeah, I don't think I really want to go in a time machine and hang out <laughs> in ancient Rome because you probably wouldn't live that long. You know,
0: you'd have a urine-soaked toga and yeah. a communicable disease. Yeah.
1: But I mean, those guys were tough too. I mean, it was all like children again, you know, maybe half of them died before the age of five. Oh. So, and we've got catacombs, we've got, tom- you know, cemeteries, we've got places filled with little, the little sarcophagus, the little tomb. Uh, because obviously everyone, just like today, if you lose a child, it doesn't matter what the age is, you love that child. Yeah. Uh, and so you really, but you see a lot of them And so you're getting the sense that, boy, a lot of kids were dying.
0: Well, yay for vaccines. Am I right? Also, the elderly, instead of just being made fun of for not using Snapchat, they were revered because you could go to them for advice and for wisdom. So instead of just consulting a horoscope or... A magic eight ball or the robot who lives on your countertop for life decisions you would just ask the human being who loves you who who created you with their own body and survived plagues and wars and ask how do i be an adult and they would tell you
1: and that could be a world of experience because that person lived through x y and z that now maybe the city or this you know the state is now experiencing and they can remember a time when because um, that's your you know, a great asset.
0: Yeah, they're like, there. look at all the things that didn't kill you. You yeah. must be a badass.
1: Yeah, they don't, they don't, you couldn't Google the stuff. Yeah. You would have the elders talking. You have <laughs> the the documents. You have the libraries. You have those kind of things that were written down. But having a person still alive would have been would have been great. So that's sort of the sorts of things that we can tease out from archaeology is that we have. I mean, particularly with the Romans, we have so much literature and hundreds of thousands of inscriptions. I have
0: a very stupid question. There are no stupid. I'm questions. I'm going to ask it okay. anyway, um, as I do. If you had to describe to like a second grader Mm. the rise and fall of the Roman Empire in like a couple of sentences, Uh. how did Rome, how did the Roman Empire get so powerful? Right and what the hell happened.
1: Yeah, okay, that's that's who that's a great one.
0: Okay. Let's buckle up your butts for a whiz through space and time to get some highlights in a very very brief history of the Roman Empire situation. So, the history of Rome, it all starts around 753 BCE when a virgin named Rhea got knocked up by the god Mars legend has it. Mars is like, I'm going to put a couple babies in you. So she had twins who were supposed to be tossed into a damn river, but instead they got ditched under a fig tree and they were discovered by a she-wolf who kindly suckled them, which seems weird and gross to be like sucking from wild dog breasts. But hello, I ate cheese yesterday, which is like from big old cow titties. So whatever. Anyway, Romulus, one of the twins, killed his brother Remus, What a dick. And he was like, how about this? I'm the first king of Rome now. Now, Rome was ruled by a bunch of kings, a lot of whom were total dicks. And then it became a republic in 509 BCE, all the way to 45 BCE, when it becomes an empire. So that empire lasts about 500 years until its fall, which happened about 476 AD. So I'm going to let Darius explain more. And Why?
1: They obviously had great things um, that nobody else did. So they started off as a little village like everybody else, but they had a sense of themselves and what they could accomplish and they did it. So against all odds, so they end up having a better military. Basically they had something, a good idea, a good kind of mindset that ends up over time allowing them not just to defeat people, but to have relationships with those people in those communities. Uh, and they do it rather quickly, and and they end up having a great network to the point that all these communities in Italy are now on their side, and they're all becoming uh, Romans, right? They actually get the citizenship, and over time, that that relationship, like me to you, we speak each other's language, so we 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 trade. Uh, and this is after we've maybe gone to war. And then eventually we allow you to intermarry with us. So now your people can marry in our people. And eventually, you know, your community can have the right to vote. So all these kind of steps... Is the way they kind of figured out how they would deal with other people. If you go over to the, the Greek system just for a second, where there's no Greece per se, but there were Greek city states. So common gods and, and shared co- cultural norms and language freaking hated each other's guts. Oh, so no. it all be like, I'm going to enslave you and you're going to enslave me. And, and so there was very, they were very jealous about the, the citizenship of their city states. It was just almost impossible to become an Athenian or something like that. You, they would enslave you, you know, uh, and so forth. But, uh, anyways, that's, I think, one of the core differences. The Romans, in the end, were always navigating negotiating with these kinds of terms by about the 90s bc even though rome had already conquered the entire peninsula the entire boot of italy uh, the bulk of the people that were still fighting with them and supporting them and you know went against the carthaginians the big the big rival of rome in the western part of the mediterranean they're not mostly citizens of rome so finally they're like hey we're out of here. We're going to do a, basically a big ass walkout. Mm-hmm. And because you're not letting us be a part of you. But at this point, we're really we've, we've given enough. Mm-hmm. And so there's like a like a civil war that ends up with the Romans giving all of the Italian allies citizenship. That's like a big deal. And that was a big bloody fight. Um, but anyways, it's, uh, you know, these things took place over time.
0: Carthage, by the way, is now in modern day Tunisia in North Africa, and it's just a hop and a skip over from Sicily. So these wars were called the Punic Wars, and that's Punic, that's with an N, Punic. And they were rough, long wars. They lasted almost a hundred years. But eventually, Darius says, Rome wins out around 146 BCE because they have this massive support from Romans all over Italy. So they destroy Carthage and the city of Corinth, like bye-bye. But this power doesn't last forever. It starts to crumble.
1: So the Romans just, they, they, they did kick ass. Yes, it's true. But at the same time, they were very uh, hesitant to use that power. But when they used that power, it became quite awesome. Mm -hmm. And then the last 100 years of the Republic is really about a deterioration of the norms and the the basic uh, premises, let's say, of their constitution, uh, where more and more it was about individual strongmen rulers. Uh, Not rulers yet, but more like uh, lead... Politicians that were also the generals. And the generalships start getting extended more and more, breaking the norms.
0: So weird rulers start to take over, starting with Julius Caesar, who crosses the Rubicon into Italy and ends the era of this people led republic by becoming a dictator. This is around 45 BCE. So a smaller little body of rulers start kind of rotting it from the inside. Not to be dramatic. But the whole timeline is dramatic.
1: You're really getting more and more of the concentration of wealth and power into just not just these maybe three or four hundred families historically. Now it's into like three or four people. That can okay. really run it. And, um, and at a certain point, it's, um, this guy named Crassus, Pompey, and Julius Caesar. So the triumvirate, if you ever heard of this term, the triumvirate, the three man grouping, it's, they're the ones that conceived of this. And between the three of them with all their clout and contacts and so on, now they're running the Senate. But finally, it, it, it's just boiled down to just one guy. And the last man standing in that kind of conflict was, uh, was Julius Caesar. So the Republic had an empire in its last hundred years, but now it's under the, uh, r- the the rule of one guy, Caesar, mm-hmm. assassinated in the Ides of March. So we
0: covered a little bit of this drama in the Egyptology episode, just FYI. So to meet Caesar, by the way, Cleopatra, Egyptian queen, reportedly had herself rolled into a carpet, and then snuck into Caesar's quarters. And he was like, hot damn, this teen queen has got some flair. And despite being decades apart in age, they became lovers. And then they had a son that Caesar never acknowledged. And then Julius Caesar got shanked by his own posse. But the empire marches on, thanks to nepotism.
1: The, the perpetuation, let's say, of, of the one man rule is continued by his great nephew, who is his, uh, his uh, adopted heir, and that is Octavian, who changes his name to Augustus, who defeats his rival, Mark Antony, mm-hmm. the former lieutenant of, uh, of Julius Caesar that had kind of a falling out, and his now girlfriend, Cleopatra. So yes. we got a mix in uh, an incredible uh, historical figure. And uh,
0: Cleopatra was Julius Caesar's ex, right? Yeah, well. She had a baby with him?
1: Yeah, she's Aaron. So basically, he is back in Rome. He's consolidated his power. His uh, foreign, not wife, but, you know, his foreign lover, who's a queen, is pretty good, you know? Yeah. He got something over all the other guys in the Roman Senate. Like, who's your wife? Who's your girlfriend? Because my girlfriend, let me tell you, man, queen of Egypt. I and mean, that's pretty good. So she's Home. in power. She's hanging out in Rome. And then he's killed. Ooh. And so she's like, I got to get out of town. And she goes back to Egypt. But then... She's a very powerful person, and who comes next is Mark Antony. Going, hey, give me a chance, you know. I'm, I'm, you know, and so therefore they they end up um, shacking up, and he ends up living instead in Alexandria with her, and it seems like a legitimate uh, uh, affair that grows into a real, you know, relationship and lots of kids and so forth.
0: So Cleopatra Ariana's, Thank you. Thank you. and she and Mark Antony have some kids.
1: And, uh, and he thinks he's going to be ruling the empire with her, even potentially from Alexandria, just kind of abandoning uh, Rome as the, as the prime city. But then that's all thwarted when uh, you know, he goes off against uh, head-to-head against uh, Octavian and loses in a big naval battle. It's called Actium. And then from, from that point on, then you get these dynasties. So you get you know, Julius Caesar's... Grand nephew, Augustus is the emperor, changed his name to Augustus. I mean, you know, how many people are famous today and it's not the real name? You know, they've changed their names. Well, Augustus did that for, I mean, he did that over 2000 years ago. He's like, I got to leave behind uh, this bad legacy. I'll just, if I change the name or start afresh. A little
0: rebranding, just a little rebranding. Totally
1: amazing rebranding. Then of course he gets the best, uh, you know, poets and and historians of the day to write new histories and you know poems of praise and and so on and that's what you learn as a child when you're you know learning learning latin
0: so augustus caesar's nephew becomes rome's first emperor and he commissions this great literary figure virgil to write some epic soft propaganda kind of like if terrible news anchors just read glowing poetry over the air but virgil croaks getting off a boat and has instructions to burn the piece as it's just a rough draft. He's like, "Ugh, don't publish this. Oh my God, it's so bad. But Augustus is like, it looks good to me. Let's just publish this bitch. And it becomes, of course, the Aeneid, which contains lots of swords and blood. And one line that you are free to bellow as you enter your next debauched party, quote, let me rage before I die.
1: And, uh, and then, so the, the, the empire chugs along and, you know, ups and downs, you know, down would be like a Caligula, uh, up would be Trajan who builds a kilometer long bridge across the Danube and kicks butt in Romania. Um, so you have a lot of high points, but then you, you, you get to a moment when there's crisis and the crisis is, uh, from 235 to 284. And it's just bad where, you know, emperors last about as long as a prime minister of Italy which is around two years. So it's just bad, bad, bad. Assassinations and oh. invasions and outbreaks of plague and runaway inflation. It's like Venezuela. I mean, really bad stuff. I mean, really, as bad as you can imagine, we get Constantine. And of course, Constantine is the famous uh, emperor to really give legitimacy to Christianity. But he establishes uh, Constantinople, which we call Istanbul today. Every gal Constantinople, lives Istanbul in Constantinople. Thank you,
0: They Might Be Giants, for your contributions to historical literacy.
1: As the new prime location of the empire. And that half of the empire, the eastern half, actually lives on another thousand years. But in the west, it really kind of disintegrates fully in the 5th century. It kind of gets won back just briefly in the beginning of the 6th century And each one of these moments that I'm just just rattling off, I mean, they're all incredible moments of history, just Mm -hmm. unbelievable, mind-boggling sagas.
0: So ultimately, hundreds of years after Caesar, around 476 AD, the Western Roman Empire falls. I've
1: fallen and I can't get up.
0: And then its last emperor, a dude by the name of Romulus Augustus, loses a battle with some goths which I like to imagine was just a big tussle with invaders wearing fishnet shirts and cat collars blasting Sisters of Mercy until Rome was like, fine, fine, we're done. We're done here. And Rome, interestingly, started with a Romulus. Its first emperor was an Augustus, and it ended with a Romulus
1: Augustus. (laughs) But Rome ends up, you know, still having this voice. I mean, Rome today still has a voice as well. It's the capital of a country. Country's only been around since 1870, 1860, thereabouts. Uh, As modern, as modern Italy, yeah. There was no modern Italy before. There was all city states.
0: So Italy's a brand new country. I did not know this. And again, I'm Italian. Okay, so how does this relate to the archaeology?
1: Yeah, you had all kinds of I mean, it's a rich history in in Italy. So, and that and that is all going to leave behind layers, strata, which is going to be part of your excavation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, <gasps> so like, oh wait, we're in the fifteen hundred still, you know, because we're finding this kind of myellic, uh, uh, like, uh, you know, pottery or, or whatnot. So it's just everyone leaves behind something, uh, and that's that's again part of the fun.
0: So what? types of things does Darius find on digs? Well, there aren't a lot of old diaries or papers laying around, but there are tombstones and inscriptions on marble, and there are old coins, and those give archaeologists some dates to work with. P.S. People who study coins are called numismatologists. Hi! A lot of the tombs that archaeologists poke around in have already been disturbed, so they mostly find modest kind of everyday articles like a hairpin made from bone. But I kept probing for drama, and I asked about the less everyday things. And Darius said that his favorite discovery that his team has made is a statue of a man, and it was made in red kind of veined marble. It had one bronze eye, the other went missing. Now, the subject of the sculpture is based on an old myth, and he's depicted in this blood-red stone for a reason.
1: Marcius is this uh, foolish satyr that challenges, his, challenges um, Apollo, the god of music, god of uh, enlightenment, and, and god of many things, but god of light, uh, challenges him to a musical contest. And then he loses. Mm-hmm. So he is skinned alive. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. So you usually see him in this scene where he is strung up on a tree or a tree trunk. And uh, it looks like he's in pain and so forth. And there's, there's a seated Apollo with his lyre. And then you have, uh, a slave attendant, the Scythian who is, uh, sharpening a knife. That's oh. the kind of scene that you get. So we found the, the Marcius figure. There are many of these, but, um, and some of them are white stone and some of them are, uh, in colored red marble. So we found one of red marble. And so you're getting that sense of skinned alive, like, uh, predator, you know, Schwarzenegger. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. Yeah. So it's that kind of, it looks it's just horrific. I mean, it looks, his face looks very tortured and contorted and so on. Just a lot of energy there, which I kind of like. I'm more more interested in that than say the classical kind of classicizing kind of some sort of nice unemotional kind of gaze like I'm above all of this mm-hmm. that's that doesn't get me going you know but yeah. when you see drama and you know bulging contorted figures and so on just like wow that's that's drama
0: some drama that Darius is not into
1: and then of course you have the whole other side of collectors and looting and looted art like right now please don't buy anything that's from Syria on the market, because it's stolen. Do you know what I mean? Like, don't yeah. do not do it museum, don't do it individual. But there's a huge market uh, for materials. And that's, again, part of that space in which I'm interested in. It's not just the archaeology excavation, which is destructive. It's also the preservation side.
0: You know, in terms of your career, what would you say your biggest goal in archaeology is?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's definitely the, the preservation side. It's definitely how do we how do we treat these sites better? How do we get more people interested? How do we communicate the values of preservation? I mean, people right now, I mean, we're probably traveling more than ever. Mm-hmm. You know, flights can be cheaper. I don't know, you're airbnb it. I mean, you can do anything you can to save money to get to these places. But when you're going to a place, you, chances are a big part of your experience will be what? Food, will be contemporary society, but it will also be something that's old. And mm-hmm. so that you, that's the part where you got to look at that and say what's being done? Is it being done well? You know, how's it being preserved? Who's involved? Is the local community benefiting from it? And so forth. And I I hate nothing more than somebody says they did something in Rome and says, yeah, but I saw it. So it looked really, it looked really overgrown or didn't look like anyone really cared. And that's, that's not the kind of walk away you want from Rome. It's like, should be a, a blazing you know postcard to the world like this is where we we take care of history if you've never been to rome you need on some level to experience the coliseum you need on some level to experience the vatican now if you just drop in and say i'm gonna go to the vatican you didn't get your ticket online ahead of time or whatever then you're kind of you know you're in trouble i mean it's just going to be difficult you might wait hours i mean or whatever but that's that's that would be a shame but then you need to experience the real rome how do you do that and a lot of it is just you know carving out some spaces and just i think seeing the the city go by um sit down on a piazza and enjoy that that kind of reality i think that i i i want you to slow down when you come to rome so otherwise you come away from rome with i did this and there was a huge line i did this and there was a huge crowd i did this i mean i that's just really going to eat into the authenticity of the experience what about
0: something archaeological while you're in Rome
1: oh my god if you don't if you don't go to the Roman Forum you're in big trouble And that's <laughs> that's the most one of the most historic sites in the world is the Roman Forum so sure there's the Colosseum which is iconic but the Forum is where it all happened I mean that's where the Senate was that's where the riots were that's where the voting took place that's where you know Cicero made his career
0: Cicero, by the by, was one of the most famous Roman prose writers. And he was also an orator. He was a lawyer. And he spoke out against the dictatorship of Julius Caesar. He's like, I think this guy's a knob. He also later spoke out against Mark Antony. But instead of just exchanging Twitter clapbacks, Mark Antony just had him killed and then displayed his head and his hands in the Roman forum. I'm telling you, they love drama. Italians love drama.
1: I mean, anyone that's famous that you think of the ancient Roman world, you're literally going to walk where they walked. You just have to go there. You just have to go there. No excuses. And there are tons of other places, you know, Trajan's markets and the form of uh, column of Trajan and the, the large Argentina where Julius Caesar was assassinated. There are many other things to see. The Pantheon, of course. Oh, my God. You got to go to the Pantheon. Those are, those are the must-sees, must, you must experience. You must be in that space.
0: So you should block out like at least a week or so.
1: Oh yeah. Oh, well, I mean, I'm, I'm, I've like I lived there. You t- lived there. I lived there twenty years, and I do not think that I've seen everything. I haven't. I haven't seen a fraction. But you're coming back because Rome is so rich in history. How do you? How do you rival a place with hundreds of churches? It's the capital of an empire that basically formed Europe. I mean, all these civilizations around the world. I mean, everyone. When we're making something extraordinary, historically speaking, sure, I'm going to glorify myself because I'm the patron <laughs> of that. But I'm I'm glorifying God. Mm-hmm. and and all those statues and all those museums from the ancient world i mean in one way or another it's really it's 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 religiously motivated it's uh, so weird and, you know so
0: i'd never thought about it this but yeah. it, it's so weird that ancient art is just like fan art to god yeah so every time you see a statue of a god or a painting of an angel it's just like a binder paper pencil drawing of taylor swift or some lady
1: gaga lyrics embroidered on a pillow I mean, you know, so you walk around the streets of Rome or any city in Italy, and in all these street corners, there's a little shrine to Madonna, you know, to Mary. And you're just like, what the hell? Like, why? What the? You know, she's everywhere, right? She's like rock star. And then you realize that that tradition came from the Romans, and the Romans then believed at you know what's a crossroad? I mean that's a point of of uh, it's a meeting point. You know things can happen. You know you go left, you go right, and so forth. Um, so you you'd want these local deities in your neighborhoods overlooking you, and you you pay your respects to them because huh. they're you know taking care of you. That you know if I go here at this intersection, I turn left, and uh, a roof tile slides off and bashes me in the head, and I'm dead. But if I go right and I walk along, well then, you know, I I just met my wife or something like that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, really sliding doors kind of, kind of concept. Can I ask you
0: patron questions? Yeah. But before we take questions from you, our beloved listeners. We're going to take a quick break for sponsors of the show. Sponsors? Why sponsors? You know what they do? They help us give money to different charities every week. So if you want to know where Ologies gives our money, you can go to aliward.com and look for the tab Ologies Gives Back. There's like 150 different charities that we've given to already with more every single week. So if you need a place to go donate a little bit of money, but you're not sure where to go, those are all picked by Ologists who work in those fields. And And this ad break allows us to give a ton of money to them. So thanks for listening and thanks sponsors. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Listen, we're all carrying around just a backpack of stressors and sadnesses. When we keep them all zipped up and the load gets heavier, it can start to affect us negatively. You start to feel misunderstood, sad, resentful. A safe place to unpack that is, you guessed it, Here's the deal, so whether you're staying at home or you're heading out on some summer explorations, KiwiCo is inviting kids, also kids at heart, that's you, to enjoy their first ever kiwico.com slash ologies summer. That's 20% off your summer adventure at kiwico.com slash ologies summer. Oh, have fun. Oh, it's heating up. It's time to say I'm bye now to your jackets and your sweaters and your tights and get reacquainted with shorts and tees, breezy things. Can I point you to the direction of Quince? What I love about Quince, you can build a lineup of timeless pieces. They keep you looking effortlessly chic year after year without spending a fortune. They have premium European linen dresses, blouses and shorts. They start at $30. They have washable silk tops. And I love that all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands because they partner directly with top factories. They cut out the cost of the middleman and then they pass the savings on to you. So whether you need a sundress you can wear to a picnic or you need some good t-shirts or tanks that feel nice on your skin and are well-made, head over to Quince. I love them so much I put them on my body. That's what clothes are for. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com ologies for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. <gasps> That's qince.com slash ologies to get free shipping and 365 day returns. qince.com slash ologies. Oh, hi, it's me, the lady that checks a bunch of scholarly articles before she believes anything, Allie Ward. And I feel like we are similar in that we have a fair amount of skepticism and we like to dive deep and find out what the actual facts are. This is why when it comes to any kind of supplements, I enjoy Ritual, which is a female-founded B Corp, meaning that they're holding themselves accountable to not just the company, but also to the health of people in our planet. And they're clinically backed, essential for women at 18 plus multivitamin has these high quality, traceable key ingredients in bioavailable forms that are clean. Only about 1% of supplement brands are USP verified and Ritual is one of them. So I like being able to trust what I'm putting in my body. From an aesthetic standpoint, I'll also tell you that Ritual are beautiful little vitamins. They look like lava lamps and they taste like mint. So taking my Ritual as part of my, I guess, morning ritual. I, that's probably why they named it that and I didn't even think about it. Anyway, no more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. So get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash ologies. You can start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash ologies for 25% off. Down the hatch. Okay. Your questions. So the first Patreon question was asked by a few people, including Richard Rigero, Neil Williams, John Murray, Ellen Alexander, and Ashley Hamer. Ashley Hamer wants to know, what is the deal with all the lead in Rome? They had it in their pipes, they sprinkled it in their wine. Considering how long they used it, you think people would have noticed their effects? Did they?
1: Absolutely. Yes, you just read Vitruvius 10 books of architecture from the 1st century BC where he says, "Yes, when those guys that are making the lead pipes for he uh, look at look at their condition, look at their health. It's terrible. So you, educated Roman, keep your distance." But they wanted the lead. Why? Because it is a huge derivative from the refining process of silver. So when you find silver in, in Spain, you usually get it with a lot of lead. So you separate the lead from the silver. Now you've got literally tons and tons and tons and tons of silver, of, of lead. What do you do with the lead? Well, it has a low melting point. It's malleable. Let's use it for piping. In addition to piping in ceramics, piping in stone, even piping in wood, but it's that lead is used and is okay in Rome because the water always flows through it. It doesn't sit. The people today in, let's say, Washington, D.C., I mean, they have a lot of lead pipes. They say, run your tap for 15 minutes before you use that stuff. Ooh. So the lead is also going to uh, not affect you in Rome in the same way that you would think because the water is hard. The piping all gets coated with calcium very rapidly. So, uh people don't die from lead poisoning, let's say, per se. It's an, like an old kind of wives' tale. But yes, they did use lead and other things. And we talk about it in rouge, or we even talk about it putting in food sometimes. So, bad idea. Bad idea. Don't do it. Don't do it. So Obviously, yeah. I mean, some some things you read about, you're just like, I don't understand why would they would do that. Ugh. But the lead pipes, I understand now why they did it, why they used the lead. Oof. A little smarter about it than, let's say, we are.
0: Is there any true to the fact that that's why like caligula was kind of crazy that's why people were nah, so
1: bananas I don't, okay. I, don't I mean no nah, I mean the guy okay. that guy that guy was messed up I mean I mean like watch my show but basically 1400 days of terror I mean what with, with, with the guy with caligula the insanity part uh we can't ever quite figure out what the deal is but Here's a guy who, his relatives are being killed left and right. He's held hostage by the previous emperor, Tiberius, on the island of Capri, doing God knows what for like 10, 15 years. Then when a Tiberius is finally dead, now he's the last relative still standing, so he's the, now the emperor, has no experience, never really dealt with society. He's just been living on a private island. Oh my God. Living in fear of being killed because one by one, his other relatives are being put to death. Oh my God. So, eesh, And that, that's gonna mess you up. Yeah. And it's gonna also make you, not trust anybody and when we do look at legitimate sources that talk about him and show him interacting with this one particular delegation uh, that comes from i think jerusalem he doesn't he seems to be very sharp and witty maybe cruel maybe ironic but doesn't seem crazy so i don't know but the thing is you know he has absolute power and he does end up doing some pretty strange things then the rest of the stories are apocryphal so like they said that he did this they said that he did this how can we prove that stuff but the bottom line is he was killed by his own bodyguards Ooh. So he rubbed people the wrong way. It's like your secret service just turning around and shooting you. Oh god! And that means you're probably you know you got some major issues there.
0: Because he was really known for being like I feel like very incestuous and very he was like so quite say, kinky. He was yeah. a bit
1: kinky. Well, I mean, again, that's just you know how the stories come out. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, once you're dead, people can say whatever they want, and you know, there's no there's no tape, there's no recording, there's no so it's a little it's a little difficult to sift through it. But he definitely did some. Over the top uh, things, whether or not he was you know, having sex with his sister, we don't know.
0: Well, back but. then, I feel like that wasn't that weird. I mean, FDR <laughs> married his cousin, so whatever. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. They're like, you're alive. I'm alive. Uh, yeah, Why yeah, not? Yeah. Uh, Jay wants to know, is Rome a big archaeological minefield with ancient stuff below the ground everywhere? And how does anyone build anything without ruining some of the sweet mosaic under the ground.
1: You're absolutely correct. Rome was the mega city, the greatest city of the ancient world, a million people living there. So everywhere you dig, you find something ancient. That's exactly correct. Now, uh, in different time periods, people cared less. So when you unify Italy... The Savoya family wants boulevards and new buildings and they uncover tons of stuff. And then, oh, look, we'll keep the statues or whatnot. We'll document this, but we'll knock everything down. So there are those issues where you lost a lot of material, but also made a lot of discoveries. Uh, today, of course, is very, very, uh, the process is very meticulous, very refined and very time consuming. So if I want to put an elevator, in this building or I want to uh, gut this building and put in a department store, which happened with Rinascente. Then they literally found a whole slice of a neighborhood. It's all been fully documented. Um, and they left one wall exposed. But for me, the tragedy there is that they should have made them spend an extra million or two to make that whole slice of neighborhood of Rome, with homes and fountains and streets accessible i think it should have been mandated that's borderline crime i think it's mm-hmm. a tragedy it's a tragedy um so sometimes i think you know they do it well in rome and sometimes they could do it better i mean i mean it's packed in dirt so i mean it's you can get back to it but it's like in the sub basement of the of the store all you got but you know 25 feet below you it's just packed dirt for you know mm. walls and homes and mosaics and everything, everything's just packed in uh. you know it's there in situ, on site. Wow. Lloyd Parley has a bathroom question. All right. Uh, sponge on a stick. Yep. Sponge on a the stick. The
0: whole wiping their butts with the public
1: shared sponge on yes, a stick. Yes, yes. Actually, there's a nice mosaic that was found. I can't okay. remember where. I want to say...
0: So a recent mosaic of this item, which is known as a xylospongium, was recently uncovered in modern Turkey. And let's just say it was humorous in nature. And it confirmed that for millennia... People have enjoyed toilet humor and comic strips. Well, in the John,
1: they find a mosaic with a guy with a little stick and a sponge on it. So, what's with that? So, the idea is: Do you have any idea how much paper cost back then? Oh my God, it was made by hand. It's made from papyrus. Oh God, I mean, you can't waste that on your ass. Oh my, it's God. it's not going to happen. So you 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 do you know what you? What's it? Let's talk about kids. Let's talk about let's talk about diapers. Let's talk about menstruation Let's talk about sex, baby. Oof. I mean seriously all the modern things that we have today then we're a throwaway society and it's convenient I mean go back I mean my parents you know they washed our diapers yeah and if you were rich they said you could have a diaper laundry service even back then but I mean who who could afford that so you know and then when you know then the disposables came out and you're like well I'll splurge in those every once in a while She, you know my parents would just to have it if you traveled or whatever but I mean the things that we take for granted today. Oy. So, you know, it's the same thing with a with with, with sponge on a stick. I mean, what <laughs> do you expect them to do? Um, but the fact that you can go to these Spas and these, you know, incredible, sophisticated experiences of the ancient world. And you're going to the theater and you're going to gladiator games and you're going to, you know, concession stands and so forth. But then like it's the circus maximus. You saw the chariot racing. Now 200,000 people have got to take a leak. Where are they going to go? Where are they going to go? And we, we, we struggle to figure out where all these people are going to go to the bathroom. But, you know, these are big issues. So sponge on a stick. Thank you very much. <laughs> Didn't know about that until this moment oh yes oh god um god forbid you had like diarrhea or something. oh god you're gonna have <laughs> oh, no, to be no. like can
0: i just take this stick with uh, me
1: exactly i'm gonna need you someone to rinse that out please thank you
0: oh, hey, we got an aqueduct <laughs> all
1: right um, yeah.
0: okay let's see christopher barley and lord parley both wanted to know if roman concrete was indeed stronger than ours now Great, it right? is it is okay. yes it Good. is
1: Good. Boom. Well, why did okay why is the dome of the pantheon still standing after, let's say, you know, 1800 years. I mean, how is this possible? We can't build anything that lasts 1800 years. But I mean, how do you have anything last that long? How come we're excavating stuff and we're finding these really well-preserved you know structures is because they built them in a different way. And for us to do it today, it's just not time. It's just not, uh, what do you call that? Uh, it's not efficient. It's not cost efficient. So our, we cook the lime. We The processing is different. So the material is weaker. Oh, I didn't know that. So that doesn't last as long.
0: Huh. Okay. So, much like a coveted recipe for barbecue sauce, Roman concrete recipes are exciting to people including myself. Okay, so the secret ingredients, volcanic ash and seawater. So the seawater broke down the ash and then this other mineral, phillipsite, crystallized in its place and that hardened the concrete over time. So instead of breaking down, it just kind of got better and better. But still, you know what? I would take our shitty concrete over their xylospongia really any day. Kimberly wants to know, what's the origin or history of the saying Rome wasn't built in a day?
1: Oh, well, gosh, darn it. You know, I guess we could Google that.
0: Okay, so I looked into this in case you ever get on Jeopardy or if you just truly run out of things to talk to your relatives about over the holidays. And the saying comes from some medieval French poems from the year 1190. Okay, so pass the potatoes. Please don't ask about my ex-boyfriend getting married.
1: But, you know, uh, how about all roads lead to Rome? Or how about, uh, you know, okay, here, Augustus said, the Emperor Augustus, this is one of my favorite sayings, I think, because I say it all the time. He used to say, make haste slowly. What does that mean? Exactly. It's great. It's perfect.
0: Make haste slowly. Yes. I'm going to need a minute to digest yeah. that. So Rome
1: wasn't built in a day is that kind of idea is that, you know, you just, it, this is not a prefab society. This is not something that happened overnight. There were ups. There were downs. And, and, but we're measuring the, how do we measure time today? I mean, that tweet that came out an hour ago is no longer relevant, mm-hmm. you know, like that. Yeah. But back then, think about it. I mean, we're talking about civilizations that had, had a good year. No, they had a good century. God. I mean, it's like that kind of idea. So it's like that. It's like it's, it's, the measure of time is totally different. Uh, and that's another way, I guess you could say why Rome, uh, as a, as a, as an empire lasted so long. I mean, how long do empires last today? How long did the British Empire last? How long is America doing? I mean, we don't have an empire per se, but we're like a global, we're a dominant global force. You're not going to be the big dog on the block forever. You know, you're not going to be dominant forever. I personally tell my kids, don't worry, America will still be America (laughs) as long as you're alive as well. Don't worry about it. But things are changing. Definitely there's, there's change. And America, as Rome, will change and adopt as well.
0: It's interesting to look at uh, the rise of a kind of autocrats as leading to a downfall.
1: Well, yeah, but we, have a, we, we, but we have a very strong constitution. I mean, I love Rome. I love the Roman Republic, and it lasted 500 years, but they don't have the checks and balances and so forth that we do. So, have faith in the constitution. It's a good, uh, it's a good basic document, and uh, and I think we'll be fine.
0: Okay. So this next question floored me. Jamie Peterson wants to know, is it true that marble statues were originally painted brilliant colors and the paint disappeared over the time to reveal the natural stone color that we see today? Yes. Absolutely.
1: Because the materials were biodegradable. If you bury something, uh, it's just going to, it's going to come off. But we in the field, we know this. But most people, they're not involved directly in the field of, you know, classical studies or ancient archaeology and so on. So they use, tempera they use encaustics so they actually like put a hot wax kind of paint that was translucent translucent so the whole dynamic of what it actually really looked like we're not exactly sure so when you see a reconstruction always take those reconstructions a day with a grain of salt because they're usually not very good okay okay so to recreate what must have been there has not really been done when did
0: they stop painting them do you think
1: ah oh, that's a good question no i mean all throughout antiquity they were they were painting them that's now, you know, so not necessarily be the full body. It could be like it could be the clothing, the drapery, the hair, the paint, the pupils, uh, maybe the ring on your finger, etc. Even inserting like a, a metal necklace or a crown. Uh, or earrings, so it got to be. They got to be quite, uh, quite uh, dynamic and lavish.
0: Gosh, that's um, nuts!
1: But then, of course, the statue I was telling. I found the Marcius. I mean, he was already made of a colored stone. So then, you don't even need to paint him because you're using the beautiful veining and the color of the marble itself. And that mm-hmm. becomes really prevalent from the second century AD and onward uh, to use that kind of uh, colored stone. I have no idea. Quite sophisticated stuff.
0: Rachel Marshall wants to know: Were people openly LGBTQ? Um, ah, yes. In Roman culture?
1: Yes, that's very interesting. So they don't have uh, they don't have a term like homosexual. They don't have this term, uh, but they have yeah, you know, obviously homosexual practice. And um, so, general okay, generally speaking, in the Greek world, it's pretty. Normal, standardized, no big deal. In fact, it becomes, for the Spartans, like, this is Sparta, you know, 300. Mm-hmm. Well, the typical thing was you pair a an older uh, soldier with a young soldier. And when they initiate you and kind of get you into the whole military experience, part of it is also a sexual bond. Oh. And this is kind of normal. And the philosophers would be debating about this in Athens and talk about it like the highest form of love. And, of course, the higher form of love is between a man and a man than a man and a woman. Because the man and the woman, where you're going to have a child, mm. but man and the man, it's not about that. It's oh. about real love, right? So anyways, lots of interesting uh, conversation.
0: So Darius also explained that the way Romans regarded sexual preference was really more about dominant versus submissive. So who's giving, who's receiving. It was acceptable to be a giver, but it was frowned on to be a receiver, no matter what sex or gender someone was. So not frowned upon, however is having sex with slaves or children. So yeah, they were progressive in some ways and very whack in others. Uh, They also didn't seem to give tons of consideration to female enjoyment or sexuality. But yes, it was expected and acceptable for a Roman guy to just swing a bunch of ways.
1: For the Romans, though, yeah, it's not a big deal. The bigger deal would be, say, in the, in the imperial period, you're a Christian. Oh, you're a Christian. You're denying the existence of the gods that hold together the fabric of, of of the empire. That's bad. You don't want to be a Christian in certain periods, and there are waves of, of persecution. So that's the that's the worst thing, right? Oh,
0: last two questions yep. I ask. Okay. Worst thing about your job? Thing that sucks the most? Shittiest thing about being an archaeologist?
1: Yeah, probably there's no money in archaeology. So you do it <laughs> because you love it. <laughs> You do it because you love it. You know, it's not like you're, it's not like I have a hedge fund or something like yeah. that. I guess I'm just griping here. But I got, I got no complaints. I think, I think there's everything that's great. You meet people, diverse cultures, get to travel, got to always have a little bit of a tan, you know?
0: Well, that was my uh, next question. Yes, yes, is yes, the yes, best the thing about being an archaeologist?
1: I, my, my, I, my work is outdoors. My work is outside. My daughter, do- my younger daughter used to say when she was really little, she said, daddy's office is the Coliseum, oh. which is a nice thing to say. <laughs> and it's kind of like, yeah, 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 sure. I mean, it's just um, I want to be in contact with this as much as possible. And the other beautiful thing, again, to underline is there are collections around the world in museums which do a phenomenal job to promote, you know, all this history and stuff like that. But remember, they're all pretty much all collections. So you've acquired, you've bought, you've purchased. And right nowadays, we're really scrutinizing where this stuff is coming from because a lot of stuff is looted.
0: Daria says that preservation is really important, as is knowing where the objects came from.
1: Seeing right now, I'm at the Getty, and the Getty has a beautiful, fantastic relationship uh, wasn't always the case, but right now with the Italian government and they're sharing and they're working and they're preserving monuments and so forth. So it's great to see when those things can really work. And it doesn't just benefit the monument themselves. It benefits the local community, the local governments and so forth. That's the kind of things I, I'm I'm involved in. I want to be more involved in.
0: Mm-hmm. So a little bit of karma with your history. Yeah. Also.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and now um, we can find you across many social media platforms. It's the yep. same handle. Same handle. Way Darius
1: Aria Diggs. <laughs> you just got to figure out how to spell my name. But uh, yeah, Darius Aria Diggs. Uh, pretty much Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, uh, my website. Uh, I don't know. It's all It's all pretty much there.
0: Smart branding.
1: Yes. Way to be my brand. wife. Thank you so much. Thank for you very doing much. This is really, great. Amazing. Yeah.
0: I got to go to Rome.
1: Just let me know when you're coming to Rome. we will we'll plan we'll, some stuff.
0: We'll here. get an Aperol Spritz. So keep asking smart people stupid questions and go check out some Roman ruins. Eat some pizza while you're there. Uh, You can find Darius Aria all over. He has tons of beautiful photos and links up at his website. That's DariusAriaDiggs.com. And his Twitter and Instagram are also at Darius Aria Diggs. Special thanks to his amazing wife, Erica, a writer for encouraging him to have one handle everywhere. That is a great strategy. So Darius Aria Diggs, you can find him everywhere. Um, You can check out his show, Ancient Invisible Cities on PBS and the premiere this week of season two of his Italian show, Under Italy. And that's at riaplay.it. R-I-A-P-L-A-Y dot I-T. And his American Institute for Roman Culture is at romanculture.org. And he's working on a new podcast. Follow him on social media to get all the news on that because that's going to be cool as hell. So you can find me at ologies on Twitter and Instagram at Allie Ward with one L on both. And Allie Ward.com has more links ologiesmerch.com has all kinds of shopping fun from pins to winter hats to ology sweatshirts to keep you warm thank you shannon feltis and bonnie dutch for all the amazing help with that all of those links are all in the show notes Uh, the ologies podcast facebook group is a great place full of wonderful people and that's all thanks to Aaron Talbert and Hannah Lippo who admin it and thank you Nick Thorburn of the Van Islands who wrote and performed the theme music and also of course thank you to Stephen Ray Morris he is the host of the Percast and See Jurassic Right and he edits this every week and he deserves just a wheelbarrow full of kittens and muffins for doing so. Now at the end of each episode, I tell you a little secret and this week's is just a little self-help nugget for anyone who ever gets down on themselves. Okay, so you know how sometimes you walk around and you think, wow, I'm such a turd. I bet no one will invite me to their holiday parties and everyone secretly thinks I'm smelly and stupid. And then you look for evidence to support that hypothesis. Like a friend maybe didn't text you back right away, or maybe you got a bad gift in the office present exchange. And you're like, see, look, okay, so the problem here is that you're perhaps trying to prove the wrong hypothesis. And then you're just collecting data to support something that isn't really factual. So you may need to change your hypothesis to, I'm pretty fucking cool. And then you'll start to realize, hey, there's a lot of evidence to support that. This feeling lately has been working really well for me. Having a bad day? Maybe just switch around my hypothesis. So if you need some evidence right now, I'm going to tell you right now, if you're still listening to this, not only are you curious about the world, but you're also very patient and kind to listen to the last dregs of this podcast episode. So you're pretty fun, cool. So say I, old dad word, fun podcast. Okay, bye-bye. Hackadermatology, homeology, cryptozoology, lithology.
1: Meteorology, photology, seriology, psychology.
0: For twenty-five years, Mike's has been making lemonade the hard way.